If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. Welcome back to part two of Albert Gallatin. In the last episode, he shared his plan for immigrating to the United States in search of a country less focused on money and religion, but found exactly that when arriving in Boston. We also heard about his sensible approach to building on the Constitution rather than starting over as others had suggested. And we learned how he felt about Alexander Hamilton. In this episode, you'll hear about his first encounter with Washington and the icy stare Washington gave him when he committed the number one sin when speaking to His Excellency. He'll also answer some tough questions about working with men who owned slaves and his role and thoughts about displacing Native Americans via the Louisiana Purchase. Let me ask you a question about, there's an observation that I'm having right now about something, you've said two things that, that I'm wondering about. When you were, a few minutes ago, you were talking about the Constitution, and you were talking about how some people wanted to just completely scrap it and start over. And you had said, well, wait a minute, why are we just going to start over? Because there is no perfect government, and it makes more sense to use what is in here, the ability to create amendments and so forth. Why would we start over? Why don't we just take this imperfect document that is going to be imperfect no matter what we do, and then just build on it and improve over time. And I, I think that is brilliant. But then as you talked about Hamilton, you did the exact same thing again. President Jefferson pulls you aside and says, that's it. Go destroy Hamilton. Go destroy his system. Go destroy the bank. I want everything that he made destroyed. And then you tell him, whoa, this is perfect, which I don't believe that you actually thought it was perfect, but it was perfect enough where it was something that you could build on. And it seems like these two very significant moments where we could have been in a situation where we were starting from scratch again, which would have made things very hard, you pulled people together and said, wait, we don't need to keep starting from scratch. We can just build on what we have, even though it's not perfect. Is that something that you've done throughout your life? It is, in fact, something that is very important to me, which is, if you wish, a, a measure of moderation. I refer to the Whiskey Rebellion in western Pennsylvania. In 1794, in August of 1794, there was a, an effort that was proposed that the farmers in western Pennsylvania take up arms against the federal government and to attack the resources of the government. One of the reasons, incidentally, that there was a rebellion, and I put that under in a quotation box, in Pennsylvania, and you might think that there was, in fact, no rebellion elsewhere. In fact, the excise tax had been opposed in western New York, in western South Carolina's three westernmost counties, in western North Carolina, in western Virginia, in Kentucky, in Tennessee, and as well in Pennsylvania. But why was there a rebellion in Pennsylvania? Because someone was prepared to act as the taxman, which was not the case in any of the other states. Mm. First, second issue, this was an excise tax. It was an internal tax, which normally was the business of the states, not of the central government. Hamilton wanted to use this in order to pay for the consolidation of the national debt, which had been brought forth in the late revolution, as well as those debts that the states had in fighting the revolution. And so it was seen by many as play for power on the part of Hamilton. And there is no question that this was certainly one of his motivations. Then when you consider that, if you looked at the farmers in Western Pennsylvania and in the other Western parts, the question which arises in many people's minds, because they have forgotten, is, well, wait, you have the Ohio River, which leads to the Mississippi River, which leads to New Orleans, which means you can transship your bulk grains, your rye, your wheat, your corn. And so why would anyone object 
to that sort of thing because, and this is again what one must pay attention in history, until 1795, the Spanish controlled the Mississippi River and they imposed tariffs on any goods which were transshipped down to New Orleans. These farmers did not have the specie, the gold, the silver, to be able to pay for those tariffs, which meant the only way that they could send their goods to market eastward was across the mountains, which did not have very good roads, if any roads, whatever. But the easiest way to do this was by means of whiskey, distilling the rye and the corn, particularly to turn it into whiskey. And the value of the whiskey on the western side of the mountains and the eastern side of the mountains remained essentially the same. And so you would not lose anything by taking an eight-gallon barrel of whiskey across the mountains to, say, Philadelphia or to Baltimore or whatever, and to sell it there. However, the difference between the western side of the mountains and the eastern side of the mountains was this. Any distiller on the western side of the mountains was operating from two to four months in the year. On the eastern side, they were operating every day of the year because they could obtain the goods, the bulk grains to distill into whiskey. And so the distillers on the eastern side of the mountain had no objection whatsoever to paying whatever it was that Hamilton wanted them to pay. But on the western side of the mountains, not only did they not have a year-long operation, but they also did not have the specie to be able to pay. And so when the revenue officers came to apply the excise tax, what happened was is that they did not have the monies, and so they found their goods being set up at auction. So when we discuss the whole question of the rebellion in Western Pennsylvania, it is understandable that the farmers were at their wit's end. For three years, they had been taxed right. by Hamilton and the Treasury. And finally, they wanted to take up arms. There was a meeting at Monongahela in which I participated as a delegate from Fayette County. And there were those of us who were, shall we say, of a more moderate view. I argued for two hours before 59 of my fellow delegates who had been chosen to discuss this and to recommend it to the larger group, which was some 260 delegates as to whether or not we should take up arms or not. And I argued against taking up arms. I said to them, in essence, I agree that you have a valid concern. This is not as it should be. However, we cannot succeed against the power of the federal government, the power of the central government. It was already rumored that there were militia forces that were being gathered to come across the mountains and to crush this rebellion. I said, furthermore, we should take advantage of those means which are provided to us by the Constitution and by the simple fact that unlike what happened in the 1760s and the 1770s with the taxation from England by the Parliament, 3,500 miles removed away, our representatives, whom we had voted for, we're sitting in Philadelphia, and we should take full advantage of their presence there to try and to address the issue of whether or not this was a proper way of doing things. And so I was able, in company with others, to convince the delegates not to take up arms, despite the fact that eventually the Watermelon Army Almost 13,000 militiamen from several of the states came across the mountains, led by Light Horse Harry Lee as the commander, and the inspector general was Alexander Hamilton, again seeking military glory. And despite the fact that he tried for over two hours to find out whether or not I had actually encouraged armed rebellion, was unable to do so, and was not able to get anyone to agree with him that I might have argued uh, armed rebellion. But he did arrest 
1863 were taken to Philadelphia, which incidentally is against the Constitution. You must be charged and tried in the district in which you have committed, it is alleged you have committed the crime. And if the crime was committed in the area of Pittsburgh and Pittsburgh Landing and Monongahela, they should have been tried in that area. But they were brought to Philadelphia, 23 of them. And the end result was that two of the 23 were found guilty of treason. And His Excellency, who, while I might not have agreed with all that he did, was a very shrewd man. Are we talking about His Excellency George Washington? Yes. Okay. And His Excellency pardoned those two men. One, because he was a simpleton, and because the other one was an idiot. George Washington was an idiot? No. The two that were charged and found guilty of treason. He pardoned okay. them because, as he said, one was a simpleton and the other one was a fool. So this is why I consider him to have been rather shrewd about all of this. But the end result of all of this was that it was an opportunity to make use of the Constitution as it had been written, even though it was only five years old, and to use the methods that were available within the Constitution. It has yeah. to be said, it has to be said, in all honesty, that what was unavailable in 1794 became available in 1795 with John Jay's treaty with Spain, which opened up the Mississippi for use by our shippers, by our farmers. They were able to go down to New Orleans without having to pay any tariff. And then after that, it was a continually, it was renewed unless some one party, either the United States or Spain, said that it would not be continued. So this is perhaps a rather elaborated example of how I tried to find if possible, a middle ground, acknowledging the reality and the truth of what the farmers were complaining about, but saying we can make use of what is in the Constitution, what we have in Philadelphia in the form of our elected representatives to fight this particular battle for us. It's exactly what the United States needed during those times, too, as well. It's you need this calm hand. We don't always have to go and start shooting one another. As we said before, we don't always have to rewrite and restart from scratch everything. I know this about you, and I, it fascinates me. Ken? Well, it, it is, the, if I may, it is the only way, truthfully, that this nation can, in fact, prosper. And I do not mean only in a financial sense, but in a truly the sense of the society can prosper, is if we find a way to be able to discuss with each other, disagree, there is no question that disagreement is going to be at the root of much, but disagreement can lead to creative people finding ways to address themselves to all of these issues. And as you say, we need not necessarily pick up our muskets and shoot each other simply because we disagree with each other. Although a lot of people have probably been at the other end of a musket ball because of whiskey. It wouldn't have been the first time, that's for sure. Well, no, and then sadly, the, the rebellion did lead to some people being killed and some people being injured severely as a consequence of it. Because, again, we, are, we have people who appeal to emotion, not to logic. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. So let me talk, ask you about His Excellency George Washington. When you said one was an idiot and one was a simpleton, I thought you were insulting President Washington twice. No, like, no, no. I see what you meant. I see what you mean now. When you were the Secretary of the Treasury, you were in that job for so long, and then you were also in the Senate, in the House, not the Senate, not so long, but you were in contact with a lot of the different presidents. With, of course, yeah. George Washington being the first. What was your first experience with Washington? Was it in the political arena? No, it was not, in fact. In, you may recall that I mentioned about Jean Savary de Valcoulon, the uh, nobleman who came 
to to look at the possibility of land grants being given to French officers who had served in our late revolution. And after we left Richmond, we went up to the forks of the Ohio. And as it happened, His Excellency, who had rather extensive lands, which had been granted to him after the French and Indian War in 1763, but which he had not been able to go and look at because of the proclamation line of 1763. This was a line that was drawn by Parliament along the ridge line of the Appalachian Mountains and which forbade colonists from crossing to establish new lands, to seize new lands and to clear lands and so forth west of the Appalachians. And so he had not had the opportunity from 1763 until 1784 to go and take a look at these lands. And when he did go to the forks of the Ohio, he was distressed, to put it mildly, that so much of his lands had actually squatters on them, who of course were paying him nothing in the way of rents, who were despoiling his lands as he saw it. And so he wanted to find a way to address all of these particular issues. And so as it happened, the uh, cabin in which I slept one night was the cabin which His Excellency had decided would be the place where the elders of the district would come and meet to discuss a number of issues, not the least of which was where roads would be cut through the mountains and so forth. And so I was there when Washington arrived and the graybeards all came in and they were all discussing what was to be done and where it was to happen and so forth. And as you have, are probably familiar with Greybeards, there is a tendency to do a great deal without coming to any sort of conclusion. And I, at the age of 23, full of impatience, finally had enough. I walked over to the map in front of His Excellency and pointed to a place across the mountains. I said, the road should be cut there. It's very clear. An absolute silence fell on the room. I had committed the unpardonable sin. I had interrupted His Excellency, who fixed me with his basilisk stare. I began to feel the tips of my fingers and toes beginning to harden into stone. After a few moments, he returned to the map. A few moments later, he threw his pen down, looked at me and said four words. Sir, you are right. And after the meeting, he asked me if I would be his surveyor on his lands. I thanked oh, him very nicely for the opportunity, and I refused because I wished to remain entirely independent. But that was my first exposure to His Excellency. My next exposure was when I was serving in the House of Representatives in 1796, just before he left office, and he had a a banquet which was given for members of the House and members of the Senate. And I attended in his company and that of Lady Washington. And that was the other instance in which I met him. And of course, that was not necessarily a very intimate sort of event because there were other representatives and other senators there. And so it was really the only time that I ever had a face-to-face -face with His Excellency in, the, in all those years, in 1784 and then in 1796. All that time in government, now, those were really the main times you spent with him. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And it was, it was such because, as you may recall, and perhaps you have, you have read of this, is that he would have levies, courtly sort of meetings, which were very rigidly controlled, and as a consequence, it was not one was not likely to go and to have an open conversation with General Washington as one might have had with Mr. Jefferson, for example. Seems like Hamilton had that relationship with him, and I'm wondering if you think Hamilton, had he lived, if he would have been a good president. I don't think so. I don't think so, and I, I will tell you exactly why. Not because he did not have the intellectual ability, but Hamilton had, a, had, it seemed to me, too much 
of a thin skin, was someone who was far too unprepared to deal with the body blows that come with politics. No matter what, when I consider some of the things that happened during the Alien and Sedition Act arguments with Matthew Lyons, for example, who was a Democrat-Republican representative from Vermont, in which he and another representative Federalist actually took to caning each other on the floor of the House, I don't know why it would not have reduced itself necessarily to physical blows. I don't know that Hamilton's reaction to the kinds of political blows that are fairly common would have been of the sort that one should have as the chief magistrate. It, it is noted that in the case of Colonel Hamilton, it seemed as though he was at his best when he was a part of His Excellency's cabinet. And he was most effective there. But once he left Washington's service, he was almost at a loss. And while we wish to have a certain degree of humility in any of the leaders that we have, there also has to be a certain degree of self-confidence. And I'm not sure that Hamilton's self-confidence was of the sort that would have been most useful as the chief magistrate. Hamilton's a, a, a great second-in-command, third-in-command, well, but it, not the guy it, that it needs is, to be first. It is interesting that you should say so, because there are people who have what it requires to lead. They have the personality, they have the ideas, and they have the means to be able to convince others to do as they seek. I never saw myself, for example, as a prime leader. I always saw myself as, and I have discussed this with uh, Monsieur Duquette, and he has explained to me what he calls the staff officer mentality. And that is that as a staff officer, as a second, it is your responsibility to speak clearly and honestly to your chief. You must make clear what it is that you understand, what you know, for him to be able to make a, a decision. And even knowing what his decision will be, you do not need to agree with it. But once the decision is made by the chief, by the leader, it is your responsibility as a staff officer, as a second, to ensure that decision is executed in the best possible way. Or if you do not think that it can be made to be a successful operation, you should resign. There is so much humility that a person has to have to be able to do that, to understand that you're not the decision maker, you're the support to the decision maker. And I agree with you. I don't see Hamilton being able to be that guy on the top successfully. And I also wonder if he might be better in the earlier stages of government when there is chaos, when people need to be running around and everything, it's not, you're not really managing anything. You're in the early stages of creation where things can be and maybe should be a little messy, but there eventually there comes a point where you need a calm hand, a steady hand to say, okay, now let's manage what we have and build it slowly instead of all fire and muskets. The truth of the matter is uh, that you need a George Washington who was not as well-educated as Hamilton was, but who had a great deal of experience and who, in part because of personality, because of who he was as a human being, was able to lead people, to, be, to exercise that degree of calm, which is so necessary to the successful creation of a successful government or a successful merchant operation or whatever does not necessarily require that this person be the most creative one. Hamilton, as I have said earlier, in my view, was a, an extremely creative person, not something which necessarily is seen as necessary, but which, as you correctly point out, especially in the early days, 
when chaos and uncertainty are at a question where you have the opportunity to respond in an original fashion mm-hmm. to the to the challenges that face us and those sorts of persons can do this best if they have the assurance that there is a calm and steadying hand and i think mm-hmm. that's what hamilton needed and was most successful in was because of washington whom he respected immensely and who gave him the opportunity to succeed and would listen to him and so forth. Now, in my case, I was fortunate in that Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Madison and I, we worked extremely well together. It was a good deal less the evident leader, though there was no question who was the leader, was Mr. Jefferson. And whatever it was that we proposed and that he proposed, we would discuss it. And again, when he came to a conclusion, to a decision, in spite of the fact I might not have agreed with it, I would do everything that I could to ensure that it was a successful program, a successful policy. That makes a lot of sense. As I'm sitting here listening to you, I can hear you sitting in a chair, and I can hear that chair creaking. And yes. I can't help but wonder what the your office looks like and what you keep around you for inspiration or, or books that are important to you. I'm, I'm actually trying to picture what this chair looks like. What are the things that you keep around you? Oh, good heavens. I keep my walking stick. I have reached the age of 85, and walking is now much more difficult than it was 10 years, 20 years ago. I keep various books about me, some of the philosophers, the, the philosophes, uh, Voltaire, Rousseau, and even some of the more recent books. But I am now living in New York City. My, my wife, Hannah, whom I married in 1793, and she is a native of the city of New York. Her father was Commodore James Nicholson the Elder, he was the most senior naval officer in our late revolution. He also had the unfortunate history of losing every ship under his command. It, Did he really lose every ship in his command? It, every single ship he had <laughs> given to him to command, he lost in one way, form, or another. Do you and get a special either, ribbon for that or a, a badge? I don't know that he did. He, if he did, he never showed it to me. Oh, my but God. He was, he was the... Very strong Democrat, Republican. He was faithful to the party. He was faithful to Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Madison. My mother-in-law has passed away some years ago. And so we are living now in her house on Bleecker Street in the city of New York, 57 Bleecker Street. I have a library. I mean, it is the sort of place where there are books that are collected not only by myself but by my children. I have three living children, James, who is the elder, Albert Rodas, who is the second, and then Francis, who is the youngest of the three. We had three other children, but those died within the first year of their their birth, and Mm. we mourn them to this day, believe me. I do. Yeah, it is Madame Gallatin, it is Hannah, who keeps alive their thoughts, their realities in our life. Uh, We have nothing extraordinary in my office. I I have papers. I am always studying. As you may know, I am the founder of the American Ethnological Society. I say the founder. I am one of several founders of the American Ethnological Society. I have written several books on the Native American languages, and I am at the moment the president of the New York Historical Society. This is not a phrase that in my time I had ever heard until reading about you, an ethnologist. Can you explain what that is? Well, it is basically the study of peoples. For example, if the ethnicities of peoples, for example, if you look at the French as opposed to 
the Germanic peoples, or if you look to the Italianate peoples or the Spanish peoples, those are all ethnicities. And so ethnology is the study of these different groups. What is it that, that distinguishes the one from the other? What is their culture? What are the languages? Are there similarities in the language? Clearly, we have the similarities in Italian and French and Spanish and Portuguese and Romance, which is an, a, a Latinate language that is spoken in the southernmost part of the Helvetic Republic by some 75,000 people. And it differs in some ways from Italian, from the Germanic tongue, from French, and it is based upon the Latin language itself, because as the Romans came across the mountains, they conquered that particular part of what is now the Helvetic Republic, and they left their language there, and because it is a mountainous place, there are people who are in a sense isolated, and so the language develops in a different way. And this is one of the studies of ethnology, is the development of language. Of course, you have philology, which is the study of language qua language, and where did it start, where is it, where is it today? But ethnology includes the linguistic aspects as well as other cultural aspects, religion, agriculture, and so on and so forth. And so this is what ethnology covers as a study. It sounds like it more or less is a study of people and what makes them what they are. And that raises another question. As I listen to you and have read some about you, I don't get the impression that you are against freedom. I think you are very pro-freedom. I mean, you went to the United States when the country was in the middle of a revolution, which still blows. I'm never going to be able to get that out of my head. That is such a bold okay. move. And so you come to this place where there's freedom, where I think you'd said it was the known as the country of the great freedom. I can't remember the wording you used. But you, the freest place in the universe. Yes, yeah. You go to the freest place in the universe, and you obviously serve in every capacity in the government, with the exception of president, it seems like. It almost seems like you were trying to fill your bingo card of all the positions that you served in government. A and, bingo card? So what exactly is a bingo card? Oh, I don't know if you know what a bingo card is, but a bingo card is like a square with numbers on it where somebody yells out a number and then you stamp it, and then if you make a line of numbers, you win. Well, it's almost like you were trying to fill all these positions, like every position that you could be the diplomat of France, you could be the ambassador in Paris, you could be the treasury secretary, you could be the vice president, like you're just trying to hit everything. And then you're very interested in people, and yet there are two very significant events that seem to be adverse to the way that I'm guessing you feel about people, and that is you worked for people that owned a lot of slaves. Mr. Jefferson owned so many. But then also when you were working with Jefferson and the Louisiana Purchase took place, which was fantastic for America, but that displaced a lot of Native Americans. And, I mean, a lot of people suffered because of some of the things that you were involved with, but also because some of the people that, you know, you were around. I'm curious what you might say about that, because do you have strong feelings about the Indians and the sl in slavery? The issue of slavery, I take great concern about as... Mr. Jefferson wrote in 18 and 19, when the issue of Missouri was before the nation, and there was a great effort to make Missouri a slave state. And of course, this was counterbalanced by the inclusion of Maine as a non-slave state. Jefferson wrote that he heard a toxin in the night. Toxin is a fire bell in France, the toxin. And for him, as for the rest of us, the notion of slavery as an issue which we have not dealt with appropriately in this year of 1846, I do not need to look terribly far to find that there are aspects of the slave power which are driving us 
the annexation of Texas, for example, is an attempt by the slave power to expand slavery, since we can no longer, at least not legally, import slaves from Africa into our nation. They are looking for ways to be able to expand it in order to be able to maintain their political power. And there is no question that the political power is maintained by states coming into the Union and having two senators. And if a free state is incorporated in the country, you have two representatives, two, two senators from a non-slave state. However, what the slave power is beginning to understand is that with the increase in population in the United States, in the northern half of the nation, the House of Representatives is becoming increasingly imbalanced against the slave power in the House, simply because there are more people, thus there are more representatives from for example, New York or Pennsylvania or Ohio or Indiana or Illinois, as opposed to what exists in Alabama or Mississippi or Georgia. Slavery is an issue which must be addressed. I do not know how it will be addressed. Yes, you are quite right. And I believe that being in the service of two men who between them had something like 400 slaves, which was Jefferson and Madison, and not just them, Monroe, who was Secretary of State when I was in, in France, and then eventually was the Chief Magistrate during the majority, almost the entire time that I was in France. And so one could say, if I was so disturbed by slavery, why was it that I did not remove myself from working with these men? And that is a legitimate question. But the answer is that one is not always given the opportunity to refuse to serve simply because an aspect or another is not as one should wish. Now, there are those who would say this was a considerable matter. This is not as if it were I'm being paid $1,500 as opposed to $1,750. This is not mm -hmm. that thing. But I cannot understand how by withdrawal from service to the nation, to the entire nation. And because I am not a native born, I am neither Northern nor Southern nor Western nor Eastern. I do not represent as, unfortunately, I consider that Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Madison and Colonel Monroe did. They were first of all Virginians. I am not a Pennsylvanian, first of all. I consider myself an American. And so at times one must labor in a field in which one would not of one's own choice have labored in. And that is what I've tried to do with slavery. Individually, we have had slaves. We had slaves which came with my wife's inheritance, despite the fact that she was from New York. There were slaves that came with her. The, I purchased one slave, a young woman, whose slavery I turned into indentured service. And after she completed the service, I thought to it that she would be set up in a business as a seamstress, that she should be able to earn monies for herself and for her child. Was this the best choice? Perhaps not. But this was a choice which I made in order to try as best I could to be consistent with my personal viewpoint against slavery. In this year of 1846, to what can I foresee? Well, I like to say I see little profit in attempting to play the profit. And that is because one cannot judge the actions and the thoughts and the emotions of others accurately to predict what will happen tomorrow, never mind in a year or 10 years time. All I know is that with Mr. Jefferson, I very much agree that slavery is the toxin in the night. Now you also asked the question about the native peoples. And my view of the native peoples is that 
I am neither for nor against. I believe very much that they must adjust to the reality that in that hunting and constant travel is not a way that is adequate to support their families, that they will have to become agriculturists. There are those who disagree with me, and I respect their disagreement, but I'm, I fear that at this stage of my life, I look at what it is that, that they are, and they cannot defeat the white power. So therefore, since they can't defeat the white power, we should take the land, or it's okay to take the land, or they just... No, no, that is not what I am proposing. What I am proposing is that they must assimilate oh, okay. to, to the society that is around them, to the force majeure, if you wish. But it is not a case of where we should steal the land from them. But let us be honest. Their view of the land is different than our view of the land. We see land as a possession. They see land as something which is in common. And this makes it very difficult when you are trying to, how shall I say this, trying to find a way to encourage the growth of the nation and you have lands which are seemingly lying fallow, not being used, and most of our population is, in this time, agriculturists and yeoman farmers. And so if the land is not being used, and we, and we should compensate accordingly. But if they were to assimilate into the society as such as we have it, they would have a much stronger case to make for retention of the land. But it's not simply a question of the land. It's a question of the society and the way that it, the culture, the, the yeah. ethnology. That's what I was going to say it as an a, ethnologist. This has to be very challenging for you because there's no answer to this. Because even if, as you'd said, we were to compensate them, which is a very white way of looking at this, a very American way of looking at this, we'll just go in and say, hey, okay, look, we really want this land, and so we'll give you this much money for it. But then when they say no, well, we're really not voluntarily compensating them because if they said, no, we're not interested in that, we're going to say, okay, well, we're just going to take it. So, I mean, it's. It's a disingenuous type of compensation because we don't really mean it. it. We mean take it or leave it. Well, yes, I suppose that in the end, sir, you are quite right. It is a rather black or white situation where the offer made is made perhaps with the best of intentions, but with the worst of results. Yeah, I guess so. Or maybe even just one intention and where... Yeah, there's just it has to be so frustrating for somebody like you because I admire the way that you approach these difficult situations. I admire the way that you handled the whiskey rebellion. I love this sensible approach to being a treasurer where you realized that the debt was a huge problem and you were so responsible about paying that down. And yet this situation, there's just no answer to it because the white people are moving west and there's just no way to stop it. This is exactly right, sir. And this is perhaps one of the most one of the most painful aspects of looking. For example, even the war against Mexico. I oppose the war against Mexico, right? Because for the first time in our nation's history, we are the aggressor. What President Polk did by sending soldiers south of the Nueces River to the Rio Grande. And thus, the Mexicans, in defense of what they considered to be theirs, attacked. And so Polk used this as the excuse to be able to prosecute a war to seize the whole of Texas and eventually other parts, I am sure, of Mexico, particularly Alta California and Nuevo Mexico. And those territories... Again, one must question what is the intention behind their seizure. It is to expand the slave power. But Nuevo Mexico and Alta California are probably not the best lands to be used for uh, the expansion of cotton or other matters, uh, other 
crops that would be used and would be done with slaves. Because in Nuevo Mexico, as far as I have been told, I have never been there myself, so I speak only from second hand, but Nuevo Mexico is deserts and mountains, and it is difficult to consider how we are going to be able to use this land for the slave, to the benefit of the slave power. But this is what is driving this war, and I oppose it. And in 1844, I joined with a number, with 3,000 other people to protest then-President Tyler's efforts to annex Texas. And so you were marching with 3,000 people? Not marching, sir. We went to the Broadway Tabernacle, and we had a meeting in which I spoke in opposition to the treaty which then-President Taylor had signed with Mexico. And, of course, it was ignored. It was not ratified by the Senate. And as a result, now we find ourselves at war with Mexico. Right. Uh, now, I would say this. At least one thing was avoided. If we must talk about war, we avoided a war with England over Oregon. You may recall there was this mad mantra of 54-40 or fight. Again, this idea of manifest destiny. There is no destiny that is manifest. Believe me. And what they wanted was to have all of what was claimed by both England and the United States up to the 54th parallel. Fortunately, the English, with whom I had treated back in 1826-27, and which we had drawn the 49th parallel as the dividing line between British Canada and the United States, was extended all the way westward to the Pacific Ocean. And so everything south of the 49th parallel was the United States, and what was north of that was left in English hands. And so we avoided a war there, and the war would have cost us far more than we would have gained. It, it amazes me that even at this age where you are right now, because you are, you said that 1844 is when you were involved in this 3,000-person probe test, and that, if you're 85 now, that would have put you at 83 years old, and here you are protesting, walking with this walking stick, and I just think that is incredible the service that you put forth to our country if you even though you weren't born here you're as much of an american citizen certainly as anybody could be regardless where they were born i want to ask you just just one or two more questions and then thank you for your time you've mentioned i'm going to ask you a ridiculous question if you don't mind because i've really enjoyed talking to you and i'm just curious about this one you had mentioned polk president polk and he would have been our 11th president and then yes. you mentioned George Washington, His Excellency. He would have been the first president. And so you had some involvement with 11 of these presidents throughout the years. Now, George Washington was a big, strong man and a great leader and a powerful warrior. If one of those other 11 presidents were to be in a fist fight against them, which one would be most likely to win? That is a ridiculous question, sir. Thank you. <laughs> I to be perfectly honest, I don't think, well, possibly, well, let me see. Jefferson was the same height, essentially, as Washington. But he uh, ran from a fight. It wouldn't be Jefferson. Well, I'm not sure that you would have run from a fight. You are making reference clearly to his time as governor when he came to the end of his governorship. Yeah. And he was at Monticello. That I think that is a canard, sir. Okay. You may need to and review a little bit, but I leave it at that. Monroe, Monroe was a tall and strong man. William Henry Harrison was another one. I did not know Harrison terribly well, although my good friend Jean Baudelaire worked for him in the Indiana Territory when Harrison was the governor, was the territorial governor, and Baudelaire was the land agent for Indiana. But insofar as someone getting into fisticuffs with His Excellency. I, the mind does not readily accept the notion. I guess that makes sense, because it is kind of hard to imagine. But I would have to put my money on Andrew Jackson as I'm thinking about it. Seems like he was a scrapper, uh, that, wasn't he? Uh, yes, there is something to that. But Jackson was, uh, was not a particularly stout man. He was, in fact, a rather thin 
man. But he had a temper. There was no question of it. He was certainly somebody who would have stood up for whatever it was and whatever reason that he felt that statistics were necessary. But no, I think that in general terms, although one must consider that he was shot at twice and had to be restrained from caning the assailants into insensibility. Yes, so, yeah, that, it, it is very interesting that you would have bring up Jackson. I have to agree that at least in terms of sheer animal courage, Yes, I suspect that Jackson might be somebody, but Washington would never have descended to that level. Yeah, I think you're right. I I know that it is an absurd question after a a fascinating conversation with you, and I just want to thank you for taking the time. I, I really have this understanding of what kind of person you are, and it's no wonder that you accomplished so much over the time that you were in service of the nation. And I guess I just want to finish up. Is there anything else that you would like to add? The only thing I would like to add, sir, is my gratitude to the American people for the opportunity which I have been provided throughout the whole of my life here in this country to be of service, to make my way in this land, the freest in the universe. And I should hope that if anyone should come across my name or some of the events in which I participated, that they would look with some favor upon my efforts on behalf of America and its people. I can assure you that is happening. Thank you again for your time. Thank you, sir. I love history, and yet prior to this conversation, I'd never heard of Albert Gallatin. Was that because his role was not significant? Not at all. It was because his role was not glamorous. When a general enters the battlefield and loses 15,000 men but manages to win the day, those are headlines and statues get built as history idolizes them. But behind the scenes, there is often someone quietly pulling the strings to make it all possible. For example, when the War of 1812 broke out, Gallatin had to figure out how to pay for it after the Bank of the United States had foolishly been shut down the previous year. Performing masterfully, as he did in all of his positions, he managed the impossible and the new country survived a second war with England. As a diplomat in France and England, he was extraordinarily productive at negotiating because as a linguist, he was able to speak fluently with his counterparts. But the thing that amazes me most about Albert Gallatin is his outlook on his work. He understood that he was not going to be the man leading and would likely receive no credit for the work that he had done, and yet gave his heart and soul to help the other founding fathers build reputations that made them a household name. Albert Gallatin did not come to the United States looking for something that he could get. He came here looking for the opportunity to give. This is why some have called him the Swiss founding father. Thanks for listening, and I'm glad you're enjoying the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm History.